You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey, John, how you doing? Hey, Glenn. How this is things? Glenn Lowry. I'm, I'm well, I'm well. It's good to see you. I'm Glenn Lowry. This is the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. Uh, coming from Brown University, the Watson Institute uh, on International and Public Affairs, where I'm a professor uh, and uh, uh, my guest today is John McWhorter, professor at Columbia University, Glenn and John, the Glenn and John Show, or the John and Glenn Show, if we put it in. Uh, <laughs> Glenn and John. <laughs> That's inverse alphabetical order. We are the black guys at bloggingheads.tv, and today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the national holiday, and I guess we're going to be talking about that. I think it behooves us to talk about that. Uh, how are you feeling this King Day, John? Well, you know something that I just thought of just now? Um, I'm fine in some ways, not in others, but, you know, we did this years ago. Didn't we talk on King Day in, I remember we did it, I was sitting on a porch at somebody's rented house. It must have been in about 2014. We did a King Day thing together, and I don't remember what we said, but it has me thinking, six years later, would we say that things are better on the race front or the race talk front or worse than they were when we did that way back then? I remember my oldest daughter was still not meaningfully talking. So it was somewhere around like 2013 or 14. And we did this and we were talking on King, King Day. And um, no, there's some things that I see that are good. There are some things that I see that worry me. But it's interesting thinking about the passage of time. All right. In retrospective, no doubt we were at this microphone on a King Day in the not-too-distant past, because uh-huh. that would be a very natural thing for us to do. You know, real quick. I don't recall specifically, but we can look it up. You know what is good is that, and I think the Twitter sphere sees this very clearly right now this week. Yeah. Back in the day, I used to say, back when I was kind of the young one, I used to say, I want young people to come in my footsteps and be this heterodox about race. I want to start a movement. I don't want to do this alone. For a long time, I didn't think that was happening for a very long time. Now there's Coleman Hughes and there's Thomas Chatterton Williams and they're getting out there and they're doing great work. They're doing stuff that I either would not or could not do. And I'm liking that. I'm liking that this week. Here we are on King Day and I'm thinking I at 54 am not the last of a breed. You know, there are new people coming in. Who else in. would like you name? That's, that's a very encouraging observation. Who else would you name? Would you put Camille Foster on that list? He is definitely on that list. And they're not going to quit. And I think yeah. that's really good because five years ago, frankly, who had heard of them? And here we are. Everybody's heard of them. I think it's great. These are young African-American intellectuals who are pushing back against the, the um, conventional narrative of, of the African-American struggle and situation who are woke in their own unique ways, but they're, mm-hmm. they're not formulaically woke. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great awakening, you and uh, uh, Coleman Hughes spoke of that when you uh, did your podcast that uh, has aired recently. I Everybody that. should look for that. That's Coleman Hughes and John McWhorter. It's a very good podcast. Coleman yeah. has a platform now. Uh, Coleman Hughes is a young uh, student at Columbia University, African-American intellectual who writes often in Quillette. Uh, dot com and who is uh, uh, up and comer. Uh, so, yeah. When I started out, I couldn't have set up my own platform, you know, because it was the year 2000. I could have put out a newsletter 
or something. And I guess blogs were just starting. But that wasn't as vibrant as actually having yourself having conversations with people, which anybody can hear anywhere in the world instantly. It's a, it's a better time at this point. Okay, you you sound optimistic. I don't know how optimistic I am. I, I despair at times. I, I really do. But you put a good question. You know, what would we say that's different? How would we how do we think that the race conversation, the race debate uh, has um, changed, has advanced or uh, has uh, suffered setbacks or whatever in the intervening period since, let's say, 2014, which was, if I'm not mistaken, that was the year of Ferguson, Missouri, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, because 2013 was Trayvon Martin. And then, yeah, yeah, that's right. So that was going to happen after we had that conversation. That was at the cusp of the advent of Black Lives Matter, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Obama was still president. Uh, Hmm. Have have we, uh, have things gotten better or worse? What do you think? Well, you know something? Here's where I think we are. When we... Somebody's going to go back and find out that we have the date of this all wrong. But if we were talking on January something 10th, 2014, then, you know, Ferguson was about to happen. And it was in 2014. And we we shouldn't harp on this because I just say this constructively. 2014 was the first kind of Annus Mirabilis for ta coach. That's when that hegemony set in. And for about three or four years, it looked like, to me, everything had gone to shit in terms of constructive thought about race. That's not true in 2020. I think there's been an intelligent, not a crazy, but an intelligent pushback against the extremes of those mid-teen years of despair where we were supposed to pretend that all of Black American life hinges on problems with the cops. And, you know, I don't feel like you and I are not heard. And maybe I have a distorted sense of it that you can get from social media and from people talking to you on the street. But I feel like, yes, there is a hegemony of that other side, sort of the New York Times op-ed page. But that's not the only voice out there anymore. I don't feel like you and I don't get our say, and I don't feel like nobody's listening. And I feel like Coleman Hughes is listened to, if anything, by more people than you and me. And that is a good sign. It depends on what you and I want. But I don't feel like I'm shouting from the bottom of a well. And I did in 2014. Well, uh, more power to Coleman, and I agree with you. He's the future, and and I hope he eclipses both of us uh, in short order. That would be a good thing. As far as yep. uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates is concerned, I'm not afraid to mention his name. I mean, he is emblematic of a certain uh, way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that we both find to be inadequate. I'm not going to be intimidated by the idea that somebody is going to say you're jealous of him or you're obsessed about him, not to mention his name, but he's only one uh, indicia of this uh, of this trend. There are many other names that could be mentioned. Uh, but you say uh, things are looking up, and I'm looking at the baseline, you know, uh, the way in which uh, events get covered in the major uh, organs, uh, the way that uh, the uh, mainstream progressive political party frames its appeal to uh, certain populations. Um, the uh, I'm, I'm looking at the intellectual, what I think of as rot or inadequacy, deep inadequacy of the intellectual. I'm looking at the way the historical narrative is being bitten and twisted to accommodate the failures of uh, contemporary African-American, uh, uh, you know, uh, not only intellectuals and leaders, writers and activists, but also things that are going on on the ground. I mean, uh, Michelle Alexander, for example, had a piece, this is another name that you might be 
reluctant to mention in the context of any criticism because she's, you know, she represents something religious, something of uh, sacred. Although she's very smart and very earnest. I mean, I... Uh, and she's very radical, John. Um, and she has a very particular and I think stilted view about the history, in this case, of social control and race in the United States. Mm. Um, and uh, anyway, let me not ramble. The focus point that I want to make is that, yes, there are some bright spots on the horizon of independent thinkers who are coming along in our wake. But it seems to me the underlying baseline narrative in the mainstream intelligentsia, the great awakening, isn't that what Matthew Iglesias called it in uh, Vox him, last yeah. year? Yeah. Um, look at the Democratic Party. Look at the way that they're trying to appeal to black voters. Look at the uh, 1619 Project at the New York Times, et cetera. This is, you know, what one could go on. Look at who gets these awards and where the MacArthur Foundation decides that it wants to put its imprimatur uh, look at what the publishing houses in New York City think uh, and, and are right in thinking is a good bet in terms of uh, a book promotion and the financial interest. Um, look at the line that you see on uh, the mass media, the cable television networks and whatnot about whatever the question might be, whether it's uh, uh, blacks and the cops, inner city violence, Baltimore, say whether it's the coverage of uh, immigration and the this is the theme of uh, Michelle Alexander's. A uh, recent piece in New York Times uh, equating, in effect, the deep structural racism reflected in the treatment of African Americans in the area of law and order with the, what she understands to be the deep structural racism characteristic of American efforts to control immigration, to deport people, to retain people who cross into the country without authorization. She equates those things and says they are just uh, two different faces of the same deep white supremacist uh, DNA that characterizes American political history. Uh, look at what's being taught in our schools. Uh, look at the Afro-American studies and ethnic studies departments and the propaganda that they spew at one after another after another elite university. Look at the emptiness of the political speech of people who purport to represent the populations that are suffering the most from the failure, et cetera. I could go on. I'm ranting. I know. I'll stop. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, look at affirmative action. Uh, where there's no debate about uh, settling into an acceptance of a special dispensation as the way that Blacks find their presence in these elite institutions. I mean, I find a parallel, for example, between Blacks and Asians. Oh, you must not make that comparison. I'm going to darn well make it, all right? The Asians are off the chart in terms of performance. Almost none of them are locked up. Their families are intact. Their test scores are high. Their presence in every rarefied, uh, whether it be high culture, tech, or whatever, is growing leaps and bounds. They're succeeding in America. They give uh, evidence of the potentiality of what can be done in this population, in this uh, society. Look at African Americans. Our numbers are uh, uh, in, in, of overrepresentation among those who are being uh, 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 imprisoned uh, and incarcerated for antisocial behavior, violence, uh, and whatnot against their own fellow citizens are off the charts. And the rhetoric about it is that's American society's fault. How dare you suggest anything about black people? I mentioned the black family. A whole uh, army of sociologists will pour out of these academic uh, ghettos and tell me how dare I say that a child raised with a mother and a father has got a better chance in life than a child raised by the mother alone. How dare I say 
that three quarters or two thirds of kids born to a woman without a husband is a sign of social ill health. They'll go nuts. Look at the academic performance thing. I repeat myself. If I point out that there are relatively few African-Americans who can ace out a top law school and make their way into the legal academy and into the legal profession, and that's why you don't have so many partners at the white shoe firms in Washington, Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, I'll be run out of town on the rail if I suggest that writing code is the way that you get it ahead in Silicon Valley. Being good at what they do there is the way that you get ahead. They're, they're, you know, people start talking about structural racism and whatnot and whatnot. So anyway, as I say, I know I'm going on too long. I'm pessimistic about it because the ideas are all screwed up, in my opinion. You know, and you can correct me if I'm missing something here. I may be going through a phase. This may be a transition. I know everything you're talking about. I'm surrounded by it. I would say that I'm going to get in trouble saying this, but, you know, Frankly, that's true of almost anything I'm thinking anytime. So in my own field, there is a whole conversation going on about whether there's racism in linguistics. And frankly, if there is any racism in linguistics, it's infinitesimal. And I think it has nothing to do with keeping anybody from advancing. It has nothing to do with keeping anybody from being a good linguist. It has nothing to do with anything significant, given that, as you can imagine, in a humanities field, everybody white in linguistics is bending over backwards to shower favors upon anybody who shows up with a brown face, especially a black American. It's there. And yet the linguistics guard are extremely solicitous to the cadre of people who are claiming this. They can form committees. They can have many conferences. You just genuflect to all of this. And I watch it, and I don't participate in it, and I imagine that kind of black linguistics, to the extent that that exists, I'll bet there are people in it who look down on me for not participating in it and, you know, thinking, oh, well, there he is, the Republican conservative who doesn't know that racism exists. But, you know, Glenn, I just walk on by, and I see it as the kind of kabuki that Shelby Steele called all of that. It's everybody doing a certain kind of dance. And I'm not sure whether it hurts anybody in the end, except that affirmative action, as we've discussed, even as it has affected me, has put me in some awkward positions that I would rethink if I could turn back time. There is some of that. But in the grand scheme of things, are those things important when there are too many people in jail, et cetera, et cetera? And the things that you're talking about don't always directly impact the... um, on-the-ground issues that I think are important. But you mentioned Silicon Valley, and it's funny. There's a an HBO sitcom called Silicon Valley that is about Silicon Valley guys. You know, it's these socially awkward white guys sitting around in Palo Alto in T-shirts. And it's a very funny show. Somebody, I didn't know about it until 10 minutes ago. Somebody turned me on to it a couple months ago, and I've been just immersed in watching through the six seasons. And I keep on thinking about how that show reflects a certain reality and how these guys are you know, hired and promoted and become billionaires on the basis of how well and creatively they code. That's it. And I think to myself, in this little world, although the show now and then makes sure to have a a black face or two, I think to myself, this is the thing that Glenn is talking about and that I read about where black faces, and I would imagine especially black American faces, are vanishingly rare in this setting. And it's because the nature of the job is such that either you're doing what they do as well as they do or better, or you're not part of it. There's no such thing as bending over backwards and having a cadre of black coders who 
sit over in the corner and are mostly only comfortable talking to each other because they're insecure because they know that they don't have the skills that everybody else does. But these guys in T-shirts are not going to hire those guys because they've read their coats and their Alexander and they realize that the black guys didn't grow up with quite as many advantages as they did. And of course, the guys in T-shirts aren't allowed to think that the black guys grew up in the ghetto because then you've got the new problem. You're pathologizing and that you're making assumptions. But they have to realize that the neighborhoods that these guys grew up in weren't quite as good. The schools weren't quite as good. So they're going to hire these. No, if they can't code it with their hair on fire, they don't get hired. And that's not going to start happening in Silicon Valley. There's just no place for somebody who can't just cut the mustard like everybody else, because they're trying to be billionaires. And I think, okay, so that means that at least in that world and in the STEM world in general, either you are as good as everybody else in the same ways as everybody else, or you're not in. So I'm assuming, tell me if I'm too optimistic. I'm assuming that as time goes by, we're going to break into those places by just doing what everybody else does. Because unlike in many other fields, you can't like economics. You cannot be let in on the basis of substandard work. Although from what you said, there's a little crack in that in economics. But if you're not up there performing, everybody knows it. And they may not tell you to your face, but you just don't, you're not in. And so I think, well, okay, in some fields, there's going to be all of this kabuki. But I'm not sure whether it hurts that much, partly because of what the humanities are like. But in places where you're helping humanity advance with these inventions, Either you put up or shut up, and so every second person is South Asian. If there are no black people there, we're going to get there by doing what they do. You know? Or, or should I be worried that it hasn't happened yet? Well, some would say you should be worried. I just interviewed um, a guy called Wesley Yang. I don't know if you know him. Y -A -N -G. I know of him. I follow He's a him. very impressive writer, uh, Korean-American uh, guy. Yeah. Uh, writes for New York Magazine, amongst other outlets, uh, writes about Asian uh, issues, amongst other issues. Great Twitter feed. I recommend it. Yeah. Uh, and he is uh, uh, very fearful that uh, Silicon Valley is is becoming woke in the way that you say probably can't happen. Oh, no. And, and my response to him was, well, there is a bottom line, and I assume people are watching it. So there's yeah. only so much of this stuff that you can afford without hurting the bottom line. And it raises what, in my mind, is a very fundamental issue. Uh, about diversity, representation for underrepresentation, and so on, which is uh, you can you have certain criteria that you're selecting. In this case, just to keep things simple, we're talking about writing code. We're talking about technical proficiency at uh, computer science and such. Uh, so you have certain skills that uh, a priori are the skills that define excellence in the pursuit. But but if you get by applying those criteria for selection, too few from uh, people of color, then the very criteria of excellence come under assault. People start to say, I want you to look at yourself as an organization and ask, what do you, you, could you do to be more inclusive? What is it about the way you run your business that causes it not to be attractive to minority students? This is being said in economics. There was a piece in the New York Times just a few weeks ago, uh, a big piece, uh, trumpeting the underrepresentation of blacks in economics, and then uh, with a number of cameos asking the question, is the economics profession sufficiently self-aware of how it carries on its business so as to exclude minorities? Now, what does this mean? What questions are going to be at the forefront of the research agenda? What methods of inquiry are going to be uh, held to be uh, absolutely necessary in order to get the attention of the profession when you pursue a certain question? What uh, pedagogic methods 
do you rely too much on mathematics in your econometrics course? Do you have enough examples that can motivate people of color at the early stage of their educational careers to take your uh, profession seriously? No, they're going over here and doing this and they're not doing what you do because of the way you do what you do. Don't you know you need to do the way you do in a different way? Things like that. And the consequence of that critical uh, dynamic is to undermine uh, our certainty about the objective validity of the judgments that we're making. He's a good prospect. She's not such a good prospect. And how do I know that? He can solve the calculus problem in five minutes and she took five hours and could not solve it. That's how I know that. Well, why did you make calculus problem solving the criterion for which you Because I'm trying to run a calculus operation <laughs> and I need people who know how to do it, et cetera. Um, relative, relativism, that I'll just conclude. Yeah. Rel- you know, the, the one idea is if the criteria are hard and fast and the bottom line tells the story, then you're right. The only way that uh, you break through is that you're good at what you do. And through time, African-Americans, just like anybody else, because we don't believe we're intrinsically incapable, will show their mettle. Uh, but the other possibility is you start out in an underrepresentation status and you relativize the criteria. You water it down and, um, and uh, weaken the uh, criteria of judgment uh, on behalf of the project of uh, being more inclusive. And I think something like that goes on in the area of law enforcement as well. You get too many people in prison, you start asking the question about why are you enforcing the laws? This whole criminal justice reform revolution is being driven uh, in substantial part by the impulse to say that, you know, why would I want to enforce the law if I know the consequence of enforcing it is going to end up uh, uh, penalizing people of color? That's just an indirect way of reproducing white supremacy. So now we're backing away from, you know, well, if it wasn't a violent crime, if it, whatever, whatever. And and uh, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just <laughs> saying it's watering down the criteria. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. There is a... a there's a corner of linguistics where the way they do things is based on statistical analysis and they do interesting work. And a lot of it has, you know, implications for societal issues, but you're supposed to do some statistics, kind of low level statistics, but these are people who deal with some math. I'm not a math person. And so I, you know, I have like one little finger in this world and I go to their talks and it kind of wears me out because they're doing the statistics. And of course, some of them really seem to care more about the numbers than about the actual linguistic data. But that's the way they've been doing it for 30 years. There is a complaint that this little world is racist because there are people who would like to participate in the discussion who aren't numbers people and would rather write intelligent pieces based on introspection, on what they've observed on sociology, but they don't feel like crunching the numbers because that's not what they do. And note that I said, not me either. You know, I'm not speaking from on high. I'm not a numbers person. I respect them, but I don't do them. And the idea that it's racist to not accept abstracts that are not based on the statistical analysis is one of those things that makes me think about time machines and how interesting it would be to go back just, you know, 100 years, maybe 75 years and run that sort of thing by the civil rights leaders of those times, because nobody would think of it that way. The idea would be, if you want to get in the game, you have got to learn the same tricks that everybody else is learning. You don't walk up to the table and ask people to change the rules of the game. Now, to an extent, 
changing the rules of the game is called social progress. And so this is not to say that the progressivists shouldn't have done what they did. This is not to say that the United States shouldn't have seceded from England, et cetera. Sometimes you do need to talk about the game. But the race revolution in America has really come to push that button too reflexively. Because in this case, for example, we're being told there's this basic assumption that black people just don't do math. And you can find black leaders and teachers actually sometimes saying that. And it's understandable why that skill might have not been exercised the way it should have been in, for example, underfunded schools. There are reasons why a black person or a black community might feel like they can't do math. But really, to look, come to a card table like that and say, if you guys are doing math, then if you don't stop doing the math, you're a racist, is not something anybody would have recognized. Dr. King is rolling in his grave, that sort of thing. And it's one of those things where I just think, sometimes think, what is wrong with people like you and me and Coleman and, and Camille and, and Thomas in that, in a different corner of linguistics? And this is actually a bigger corner of linguistics. To an extent, it's the whole field. The whole field is becoming much more numbers-based. It's gotten to the point over the past 15 years, especially with the increased computing power, that to make a point about almost anything in linguistics, you're expected to have a corpus and to do statistical analysis of it and to come up with figures. So somebody a generation before me could read a whole lot of books and go a whole lot of places and speak as a guru about what they thought, and that was considered authoritative. Somebody a generation below me now is doing the numbers, and I'm in the middle, and I'm watching how when I try to make my points, and I'm trained by the generation before me, and I'm trying to be kind of mini-guru, and I'm beginning to fit into the costume, I find that it's not enough because people say, yeah, that's pretty good, but what about the numbers? And sometimes the truth is the numbers just wouldn't work, and people are fetishizing the numbers. But to an extent, it's just a, it's a fashion change. And my thought would never be these people are discriminating against me as a non-numbers person. Forget the race. I mean, frankly, I could look at some of these people and think, you're not listening to me because I'm black. And that's probably true, a teeny, 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 tiny percentage of it, but not enough to matter. I would, but I wouldn't think myself, you're discriminating against me because I got my training in the 80s. You're supposed to do what I do. I think, you know what? Damn it. I'm going to have to learn to do some numbers. And I think to myself, although I don't like collaborating, I'm going to have to become one of those people who has the, you know, the scrappy young collaborator who does the numbers because otherwise I can't get these people to listen. And I understand why they're fetishizing the numbers the way they do. But unless I want to just pack up my cards and go home, I've got to start using the numbers. It would never occur to me to think you were racist. And yet clearly that makes me a bad black person in the eyes of some people. I'm missing something. A lot of these people would insist that I'm being discriminated against. Well, no, it's just that fashions change and I'm past 50. I don't know what's wrong with me in that sense, but that is not the way a lot of my colleagues, including ones my age who are Black, think. So that's frustrating to me. Yes. It, it, I think it's part of this um, dilemma, which is that if you've been the victim and are the victim of discrimination and unfair treatment, you're really confronted uh, and and at the same time, if you also suffer some uh, uh, disability or underdevelopment in terms of your performance, uh, in the extreme case, the freedmen and women, the newly freed slaves, enslaved persons who were emancipated in 1863, were largely illiterate, propertyless, etc. They they faced tremendous 
challenges of development, but they were also quintessentially uh, victims of oppression and domination in the extreme. There's no question but that they were. Uh, so we are descended from that population. And of course, that was a long time ago. And uh, African-Americans have developed substantially uh, our uh, functionalities and capacities in the intervening period. But still, as reflected in the statistics, there are these disparities and the disparities are real. They have reasons. You can attribute them to history, if you will, but they're real disparities. So there's a dilemma that confronts a population in that circumstance, which is either to focus on the challenge of developing do you have to choose between these two? No, not necessarily, but the matter of emphasis is important. And that's what I'm talking about. To uh, focus on the challenge of the development, acquiring these skills not yet in your possession, mastering the, uh, the uh, performance of uh, whatever the task might be, uh, uh, altering the patterns of behavior that inhibit your full participation in the good life afforded by the society and so on. You can confront that. You can develop. Or you can focus on bias. Uh, you can lament, you can complain, you can object, uh, you can demand, you can protest, you can revolt. Uh, no, these things are not mutually exclusive, but I tell you that all, you know, I mean, economists, resources are limited, time is limited, attention is limited. Where one focuses one time, attention and resources matters. And uh, so this, uh, this opposition that I'm creating is not irrelevant. Now, it would appear that in the main, uh, the, the sort of uh, a narrative of the accepted, persuasive, uh, uh, conventionally embraced uh, account of what's going on with African-Americans is that we focus on development. That's why, I mean, we focus on bias. We focus on uh, the mistreatment. We focus on exclusion. We focus on white supremacy, on racism, on discrimination, on structural racism. Um, and moreover, we deny vociferously that there's any problem. I mean, uh, one of these critics uh, says at one point, I think it is Coates, actually, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending white supremacy wouldn't fix. I was just thinking of that line. Yeah. When, when confronted by some critic who said, well, what about black on black violence? What about the family structures and whatnot like that? He says there's nothing wrong with black people that ending white supremacy wouldn't fix. Nicole Hannah-Jones in her lead essay for the 1619 Project uh, collection at the New York uh, Times says, uh, yeah, 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 some people got to carp about these behavioral problems, but these behavioral problems are perfectly predictable given the of, of vicious history that we had, so on and so forth. So you, in effect, poo-poo the development gap. Too many black people getting killed on the streets of Baltimore, St. Louis, Chicago, et cetera. You blame it on structural racism. Not enough black partners at a leading law firm when they announced their partners in New York City, you blame it on structural racism, overrepresentation of blacks amongst the incarcerated, you blame it on structural racism and so on. Um, and you don't. And what don't you do? You don't take responsibility and you don't redouble your efforts on the development front. And moreover, you put the ball in somebody else's court. You, in effect, turn the conversation into what are you all going to do, you all being American society more broadly, white America, whatever. First, we have to have a conversation. You have to own up. You have to own up to what you've done. We demand, okay? You're the weakest sister at the table, and you're going to place demands. What's going on there? Don't you see? You actually don't have any power except the threat to throw a fit and inconvenience people, and you're being condescended to when your demands are acceded to. People are saying, okay, 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 please, 
Go on, go on. That's what they're saying to you. What they're not saying is the truth. They're not saying teach your kids to read. They're not saying keep your nose clean. They're not saying build something in your neighborhood. You want wealth? Build wealth. Instead, you go around with your hand out talking about a wealth gap, a wealth gap. Who's going to cure it? Who's going to cure the wealth gap? The very vicious society that you spend the rest of your time indicting for being structurally uh, uh, determined to keep you out of the game. Nobody is out there uh, 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 whose uh, portfolio is to protect you, to, to address your inadequacies, to raise your children, to pick up the trash in front of your apartment building, to get a job. Okay, I know how that sounds. I really do. I know how archly conservative that sounds. But I candidly, I tell you, I believe it's the truth of the condition of African-American people. We don't raise our children. If we don't keep our families together, if we don't clean up our neighborhoods, if we don't stop the violent behavior in our midst, et cetera, et cetera, we're going to be here in another 50 years having this same conversation. Of course, it won't be you and I, John. No, I'm going to be here, but... Uh, okay, good. I, I'm, I'm counting on that. I'm counting on that. <laughs> you know what, you, know what you, you have me thinking about? And this is where you know, you're saying, I know how this sounds. I and do, I and I, I, I apologize, people, but I can't help it. I'm not going to stop saying what I believe is true because I know you, some of you all are going to get pissed off about it. Yeah, the, um, I know how I sound when I do, do the anecdotes. You know, and I think as of this one, it'll become here comes McWhorter again with one of his subway stories. But they're not just stories because I've been observing this stuff every day for 20 years. It is a junior sociological experiment. And it's funny. Right. I saw something. I saw something the other day. There was a kind of a shabby-ish, unusually tall, youngish white guy who I saw jump the turnstile. He, he, he didn't pay. He kind of took a look around, jumped over. And you know, I just, out of the corner of my eye, saw him. And it lingered because I happened to be in a kind of a lull and I got into the, the R train and I thought, why did that stick with me? Because frankly, people jump the turnstile all the time. Sure. I thought, shit, in this 18 years now that I've lived in this city, that's the first time I had seen a white person doing that. Now, yeah. I'm sure that he is probably the 100,000th but in terms of this person walking around who has kind of a sociological eye, it's the first time I ever saw a white person do it. The people who jump the turnstiles are mostly black. They are mostly men. They are mostly under 40. Sometimes it's a Latino. That is a fact. Now, there are people who would hear me say that just now and no stereotyping. No, it is a fact. And anybody who lives in New York knows it. Now, there's a conversation going on in New York City about whether or not the transit cops are racist in terms of who they pick up and who they suspect. And I can't help thinking if they are biased in terms of who they tap on the shoulder, or if they're, if it, whatever you're going to say about who they pick up, if there's a bias involved, it's because there's a profile as to who does most of the obnoxious things on the New York subway. And it is black men in between about 14 and 44. That is a fact. Now, yes, there's a whole stupid conversation going on. There's going to be the kabuki. They're going to be the white people who want to listen to black people complaining about this bias. But the fact is the fact. Or to get from where I live, which I think I've made explicit, is Jackson Heights, Queens. And if you want to drive to Columbia, which I do sometimes, you have to cross Harlem. I'm not sure another way of doing it that wouldn't take a whole lot longer. So you have to drive across Harlem. Fine. I drive down 125th. It's a very delicate drive because unlike 
anywhere else in Manhattan that I know of that I've driven. People just cross the street, you know, and the people who are just crossing the street and barely give a damn whether you're coming are almost all black men. And if you want to have a conversation about all the diversity in Harlem, let's have it. Well, the people who cross in front of your car and almost dare you to keep coming, they are black men. And in this case, they get a little older and a lot of them from the looks on their face, you can tell that they're kind of enjoying it. And I don't think they're just doing it to me, but there's clearly a sense that we own these streets. You're going to watch out for us. And I'm not talking about at crosswalk. I'm not talking about some yeah. little town in New England. People just crossing in front of you. And no, not all of them are people who look like they have problems. It's just that you're expected to count out. And I'm thinking, does that behavior translate into anything else about them? And I don't know whether these are people who, you know, jump the turnstile, but that sense that they don't have to follow the rules. And so I drive my way very slowly down 125th. I now know to see it coming. I guess I'm biased, but there's a certain kind of person I see stepping out. And if it's not a white guy who looks like Chris Hayes in glasses, it's, it's Never that guy. There's a certain type. You start to know, all right, he's not going to stop. And so I just slow down, let him go. And then I get to Columbia and I mind my business. But let's face it, you could play a clip of what I just said and have me practically fired from my job. Yes, there is a polluted way of discussing these things. And I wonder about these guys. I think if you're going to do this, you, you can't be bothered to you know, stand at the stoplight with Chris Hayes. What kind of employment history do you have? And I can't help thinking, probably not a great one. I would say, you know, Staples is about as far as that guy goes. And yet, oh, and, and moreover, and moreover, what is your interaction going to be with a cop if somebody tries to say something to you about right. jaywalking or whatever it might be? Mm-hmm. You know, we've had this conversation before, and I've always said, I understand this guy. I'm not him, but I understand him. He's angry. He's angry because the world has dealt him a really bad hand. It's a kind of weapons of the weak move that he's making. The one thing he's got control over, he's going to exercise that control in the way that right. gives you the middle. My finger. mother told me that's why guys like that do that when I was a kid. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you you might be inclined to cut him a little slack or whatever. I don't know. I, I mean, I can tell you once I was visiting my son who lives in San Francisco and I was driving through the tenderloin and somebody threw a bottle. <laughs> somebody walking on the street through a bottle. I'm driving my vehicle. It happened to be a BMW. I'm sorry. I Actually, I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the bottle misses the top of my car by about three inches. Yeah. And I look at the guy is standing there. And, you know, the old south side of Chicago Negro in me wanted to pull my car over and have a word with this gentleman. I was bigger than him, et cetera, except I'm 68 years old and this guy looks like he's 30 and I don't know what's in his pockets. And I look around and they all look like his friends. None of them look like my friends. So I just (laughs) keep going. Okay. I didn't do anything to this brother. I did nothing except be a black man with a halfway decent set of clothes on driving the BMW. And he felt entitled to throw a bottle at my vehicle. And I thought, I thought, what rage must be bubbling inside of this guy? He doesn't know me from Adam. I am what I am. I'm a symbol of rich San Francisco success uh, that is throwing it in his face. I'm getting ready to go and spend $150 for a meal at a restaurant and whatever. And he doesn't know where his next meal is coming from or his next fix is coming from or whatever, where he's going to put his head tonight. And he's mad. You know, he's entitled to be mad. The problem with this is, though, that I don't think all angry, underserved people behave that way. And I think that's something that everybody asks themselves internally. And then you're trained to 
not think about it, but you know, like I can stand corrected because I haven't traversed this territory much in my older life, but in Philadelphia, it's useful that there is slash was a white ghetto. My mother used to drive me through Kensington and Fishtown when I was little because she used to say, I want you to see that it's not only black people who have neighborhoods like this. That's a very yeah. useful lesson. But to tell you the truth, in my experience, when you drive through Fishtown, nobody's jumping out in front of your car. And they're certainly not doing it with a smile on their face. Or if they are, they're a drug addict. That's a problem in that neighborhood. And you can tell that something's wrong. That's a whole different story. But it's not some healthy person who just kind of walks out cockily and figures, well, you're just going to have to wait. And these are people who have every reason to be pretty angry, too. I think that there is a black Stokely Carmichael ideology that has percolated into the whole black population. It would be fascinating to examine exactly how that got onto the ground. You know, it's one thing for somebody to be making a speech in one place that we can see on newsreel footage. It's another thing to chart how people on the streets started thinking differently sometime around 1962. It's a, it fascinates me, but it clearly happened. And okay, I get the feeling that, you know, I'm undercutting what I said at the beginning of this. It's self, it's a kind of, not even self, it sabotages these people's ability to get on in the world, in which case then they pass on to their children the same fatalistic us against them ideas. So yeah, that does, that does worry me. But then again, as we said last year, are those people all of black America or just some? Because remember, I've talked about being at the read the overpriced seafood restaurant in the Bronx where most of the clientele were black and they were not yeah. poor and they were not elite. There were frankly a lot of velvet pantsuits in this place, but they're all spending their $125. And I was thinking, this is not an elite. Is it really that bad? Nevertheless, you have to be very gingerly driving your car down 125th street unless it's about seven o'clock in the morning. So I don't know. I have, okay. I have let, my days. Let me let me mention something I think might be related. This is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a national holiday. It has been a national holiday for some years. I don't remember exactly when it was enacted. I think it was during the Reagan administration. It was later than I always think. Yeah, it wasn't the 70s. Yeah, there was a protest. There had to be a little bit of a movement. Some states didn't adopt it right away yeah. and uh, so on. But here's my question. My question is, uh, what is King Day? And what will it be in 50 years? And what will it be in 100 years? You can't imagine it going away. That is, no, no president or Congress is going to say, sorry, we made a mistake. We're going to, you know, reverse the declaration of an acknowledgement. So Martin Luther <laughs> King Jr. Day is here to stay. There are only so many days on the calendar. How many national holidays are you going to have? A limited number. Okay, 10. I don't know. <laughs> Will there be a new national holiday for Hispanics or for immigrants? Uh, probably. Probably, I forecast, you heard it here first, that there will be a movement probably soon, sooner than later, to have some kind of official recognition in terms of a national holiday that, I don't know, probably celebrates immigration rather than celebrates Latino identity. But in any case, I think that's coming. But there's only so much room on the calendar, so there are only going to be so many holidays. So this is important. It's not going away. Um, What does it represent? It seems to me that here we are, 50 years since, plus 52 years since the murder of uh, Martin Luther King. And we still don't know the answer to that question as a society. Is it about his pacifism? Is it about his Christian morality? Is it about his uh, devotion to the United States as it should be and not as it was in his campaign to bring the country to, um, you know, uh, to um, close the gap between ideal and practice? 
Uh, is it about his radicalism? He was a socialist. I think that's, you know, get mad at me if you want to. I mean, just read the documents. Martin Luther King Jr. would have been voting for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren if he were able to vote. Yeah, he Minnesota. was that. Yeah. Um, so is is it about his uh, his uh, anti-Vietnam War opposition and his uh, um, joining of the claims of African-Americans from the civil rights movement to some larger humanitarian cause? Uh, what is King Day? What can it be? Is it a, is it, uh, a recognition of African-Americans within the American story so that there's a President's Day, there's a, you know, the 4th of July, there's a Memorial Day, there's a Labor Day. There needs to be some solemn acknowledgement and recognition of the role that the Negro, and I'm going to use that word without apology, the Negro. It's a better word for the purposes I have here than African-American. It predates African-American. They didn't know what you were talking about if you said African-American. <laughs> you thought you were talking about somebody from Lagos, Nigeria, up until just, <laughs> just 30 or 40 years ago. But Negro, with a capital N, I'm not advocating it be used. I just say that I can use it right here, right now, for my purposes, refers to those people who were an ethnic group, an ethnic racial group within the larger American population, uh, who came into the society through uh, the processes of the enslavement and then the emancipation of of, uh, of Africans. Uh, but we're not really Africans, you know. We are Americans, et cetera, et cetera. So we could go into a lot of that. But I'm not trying to argue about African-American as a word. I'm just saying the Negro. The, the story of the Negro within the American story. Is that what King Day is meant to represent? And what about the fact, and I'll stop that, uh, you know, Malcolm X, uh, looms, I think, in the minds of uh, many of the woke generation, much more prominently as a source to a greater degree for the Black Lives Matter advocates, let's say, let's just take them as an example, than is Martin Luther King Jr. It's the legacy of Malcolm X filtered through the Stokely Carmichaels of the world and the, the Black Power Radicals of the world and the Los Angeles 1992 riots of the world and things like this, the resistance, the uprisings, the, the, the bald fist, the a militant determination not to submit. He's the, a bad the motherfucker. of the national narrative, and this is important. Colin Kaepernick refuses to take a knee when they're playing the national anthem. I'm not going to kneel for a country that kills black. He's rejecting the national narrative, but that is very much in keeping with, uh, you've been hoodwinked, you've been bamboozled, you believe that stuff? Martin Luther King Jr., evidently, believed, quote unquote, that stuff believed in the higher possibility of America. Now, I'm not advocating anything here, although I do have a position. I'm simply observing the distinction between these two interpretations and saying, what is King Day? What can it be? Glenn, that was, I hope that's what people excerpt from this one. That, that was, I know you weren't performing, but that really did say something important. Because um, honestly, what King Day is, I think, to most people who even care about the question these days, is an opportunity to say, we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. And you're supposed to say that. You, could, you I, I imagine some people have that iced on a cake. And you say that, and it's supposed to indicate that at some point around 50% white America has just refused to come any further, and we're just laboriously trying to plow ahead, and you know, people are trying to gut the Voting Rights Act, and... Tamir Rice and these things that show that we really haven't come as far as we might think and goodness is it ever really going to happen 
And and folks, I'm not trying to do a performance. I'm I'm kind of free associating here. I do have something I want to say in a sec. But we're going to sing about it. You know, we're going to shake our heads. We're going to show footage of horrible things. And that is what it is to be a woke Black person, that kind of artful despair. I'm not sure where it gets anybody. But I know that, it's funny, King died at a time when it's more of this profound change. It's this obsession I have with how we got from 1960, Black America, to 1970. So much just in those 10 years it turned upside down. And I'm just old enough to remember something that always touches me, which is that in what would have been about 1972, I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, my mother in particular was much more of a race man than many people today would think. And she drove us. It was our whole family, all four of us, which was rare. It must have been something important because my father didn't really give a damn about anything. But he came along and we went to Harlem and something black was happening. And I will never be able to retrieve what it was. And both of my parents are gone, so I can't ask them. But we went to something black and we were in a living room of some kind, and a comedian got up to warm up the meeting. He's a black comedian. I think his name began with Ch. I remember him being Chauncey something, but I think I'm making that up. Black comedian, the guy's probably about 40. And everybody was clearly kind of abuzz about him. He was like the Julian Bond of comedians. Maybe he was famous. And he's up there in those loud clothes that people were wearing in 1972, except people meant it. And he told some jokes. I remember Chauncey because Chauncey talked kind of like me. He had a very white-sounding voice. He was not folksy. This was not Robin Harris. This was not Bernie Mac. This was not, oh, goddamn fart joke, all that kind of you know modern black comedy, which I actually like very much. He was just doing a stand-up routine as if he could have been on the Dean Martin show six or seven years ago, and maybe he had been. And everybody loved him. I remember his voice in my head. I was too young to understand the jokes. But everybody was genuinely laughing at this man. And yet, I remember reading a news story in the mid-90s about a very similar black comedian. He was raised in Canada, who was trying to have a career in the United States where he would just get up and do stand-up a la Seinfeld. And the black comedy festivals wouldn't book him because he wasn't doing black humor and black audiences didn't find him funny. This was something I read about in a Canadian newspaper. I've never been able to find it, but it was summer of 1995. Anybody can do a search. Now, that was, you know, 20 plus years later. Why is it that all the very woke black people in that room genuinely love this Chauncey person who was just up there doing jokes about alimony and stuff? He made one joke. I remember he said, oh, well, they treated us as slaves, but they treated us very well. And that's my imitation of him. Everybody's like, ah, he was okay. Meaning that he had been okay in 1962. He didn't have to get up and be a working class black comedian. Now, Red Fox existed, I know, but there was room for Chauncey, and that was about to end. I would say just five or six years later, the same people in that room would have thought, he's too white. What happened, Glenn? What, what happened <laughs> with the idea that in 1965, you could be a woke Black person without this sense that a part of you has to be a working class person? What happened? You were there. What happened? <laughs> I was there, but I, I wasn't fully in uh, possession of my faculties. Let's see what I can do. I'm going <laughs> to speculate. I'm going to speculate that it's um, the end of respectability politics mm-hmm. that that happened, that the 
the, uh, you know, uh, uplift, the end of uplift. You remember uplift? No, I don't know if you do remember uplift. I was raised with that word. Yeah. That word. We're going to uplift the race. We're going to make the race better. You know, we're going to, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, pick up uh, E. Franklin Frazier's Black Bourgeoisie. It's still readable. It's, It's dated, of course, because it's about a particular point in American history, but he is livid in his contempt for the African-American elites uh, of his day who were to pretend to be white people, set up their own little secret uh, uh, hierarchies of status and have their little parallel organizations and their little parallel, you know, social events and whatnot uh, as they try to replicate within the backward race, the status of the, of the whites and whatnot. He was, he was very outraged by that. And, um, I understood it. I, I can remember reading that book in the 1960s and being very, uh, it couldn't be published in the United States initially. Franklin's Black Bourgeoisie had to be published in Paris and only later was it, I didn't uh, know that. Was it published huh. in the United States. It was initially published in, in Europe. Um, but uh, uh, that sensibility, the rejection of this idea that uh, we need to uh, persuade white people of our worthiness or anything like that, I don't know. I'm rambling. I, I have no idea. I don't know the answer to your question. Fascinating. I wonder what happened it's to that guy. It's a big guy. cultural shift, and for sure. Huge. Huge. I, by 77 or 8, he must not have had a career. And I'm not sure that we wouldn't be better off with both Chaunceys and Red Foxes. You know, it's not that I don't. I am somebody who has watched every episode of Sanford and Son twice. It's not that I'm saying that I don't like the, the raunchy kind of working class cigarette humor. But it's just that I remember Chauncey was clearly a successful man. And that sensibility is gone. And in a way, part of what's replaced it is these guys walking across the street in front of your car. They can do whatever they want because the essence of blackness is being in rebellion. So so and, what, do you, what do you make of the contemporary comedians of the Dave Chappelle's and the uh, Chris Rock's? And... A, lot of them are, a lot of them are so smart. And that's a word that you have to use carefully. But with a lot of them, they're operating above the level of Red Fox, to tell you the truth. I mean, a lot of them, like Dave Chappelle, he's not my cup of tea, but I respect him. He's a philosopher. And Chris Rock, in his goofy way, (laughs) I saw him walking across this campus once, openly hits on a young woman just out in the open air. He just says something that was really a little below the belt, out in the open air. And I thought, see, he thinks this was like right before Me Too. He can get away with that. I wasn't admiring it, but I thought he's actually saying that to her right in front of everybody because he's Chris Rock. And I guess nobody bothers him for it. It gave me a sense of insight. I thought he must do that all the time. And then Me Too starts. And I'll bet now he doesn't do it. But he, I like. But did you, see, did you see where Oprah and Apple TV were going to uh, produce a film about, uh, about Russell Simmons? And, oh, yeah. and Me Too issues. And the deal apparently has fallen through. Oprah has pulled out. And it's really because Oprah doesn't want to be part of the downfall of a black man. She's been convinced. Yeah, exactly. Is that it? I didn't know that that was it. I, that was my that was going to be my question. What was up with that? No, it's it's clear that Russell Simmons did these things. You know, it's just like with Cosby. How many of these people could be jokers? It, it's real. And Russell Simmons and various people who've put pressure on her have convinced her that the standards of um, demonstration are not strong enough, but from everything that I've seen, yes, they are. It's that Oprah has been guilted into not being party to hanging 
someone out to dry. You know, I think especially after Cosby, that's something to not feel good about because that's the idea that black people are never truly guilty, that because of our past, you can walk in front of the car, so to speak. Okay, or even now you can how do all about, what do you think of this argument? This is on, this is in defense of Oprah and I'm doing it entirely as devil's advocate. Um, I actually don't know what my considered view about this question would be, but consider the argument. The argument is you had to be there. It was a different time. Hip hop in the 1980s and 1990s, it was a Wild West uh, situation, man. Uh, there was a lot of stuff going on. There were a lot of ambitious women who wanted to make their way in the uh, trade. There were a lot of raunchy and, uh, you know, uh, ravenous, uh, sexually ravenous uh, guys who uh, had power. Um, and there was a culture. I'm not saying it was good. Or I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying that was the game. That was the game that was being played in those clubs. That was the game that was being played in those suites. And that was the game that was being played in those studios. Guy rents a presidential or the bridal suite at the top of the best hotel in town. He's prepared to spend $100,000 this weekend. He's got NFL and NBA players prancing through there. He's got the best escort services on the planet uh, populating his parties. Uh, and you are a hip-hop mogul or soon to be a hip-hop mogul, and you're striding through there, and people are throwing themselves at you left and right, and there's the room over there where they're doing the this, and there's the room over there where they're doing the that, they're starting to cook. That was, you had to be there, okay? Now, yes, 30 years ago, Russell Simmons was there. This is the argument. Yes, he was participating in those activities, and so was everybody else in the room, okay, including the girls. So now... <laughs> a quarter century or more later, you come up with this, oh, how come y'all didn't do it the way you would have done it in 2019? And that's just not something that uh, Oprah Winfrey, it, uh, given that it's an African-American, a prominent African-American in particular, but you could make the case more broadly, uh, is willing to participate in. The film, I, and I did read this in the New York Times account, Oprah was uh, concerned that they didn't give enough, quote, context, close quote, to reporting about the sexual incidents. And I think it has something to do with this idea that, man, were you there? Did you attend yeah. any parties? Do you have any idea what was going on around there? Yeah. Gonna come up and indict somebody. It's only because he's a deep pocket. It's because he's uh, famous and he's uh, wealthy. And, and it's because of this moment. And you're going to retroactively apply moral standards. Uh, did you see uh, Heather McDonald's defense of Placido Domingo? Um, no. But I know her work, and I've read about him, and I can imagine what she said. It's, yeah. worth, it's worth your attention. She says something like this. No, no, no. She didn't say that opera was the same as hip-hop. Okay, she didn't say. She definitely <laughs> didn't say that. But, but women would be but, throwing themselves. But she him. basically yeah. said, come on. You know, you're retroactively applying a standard. The guy does not deserve this uh, uh, metaphorical lynching that you're inflicting on him uh, for the things that happened. It's BS. It's BS. It's way over the top. You've overdone it. Give us a break. You're going to deplatform him here in the United States because you're all woke and politically correct. But meanwhile, he's still playing stages in Europe because he's still a great man. And his legacy ought not to have been defined by this little thing. This is what Heather said. Much more yeah. eloquently and in greater detail than I just said. It's a very strong piece defending Placido Domingo. Oh, yeah. It's, it's um, the same argument. If you don't, don't take contemporary sensibilities and project them retroactively onto a situation that was much more supple, subtle, complicated uh, than, than that. And I know that'll get me in trouble to say it, but that would be the argument. 
no, there's there is room for that. I completely understand that. It's funny, you um, you're a little <laughs> more turned on by that old hip hop scene than I am. Must be something wrong with me. I I could never pay for sex. I I cannot. There must be something wrong with me. But remember. I don't know if you remember this, but it's almost 20 years ago. You Who and I said I was turned on? I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm not turned on. I'm just reporting, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say turned on. <laughs> You're talking about all these rooms? and I wouldn't yeah, want to okay, be Yeah, okay, okay. I'm a little turned on. <laughs> remember, you, you are. You are. Remember that Eight Mile movie? Remember oh, yeah. That? Uh, yeah, Eminem. And we had, this was before we liked each other very much. We had an email debate about it. Oh, I and don't remember you, that. You loved it, and I hated it. I didn't like anything that that movie was standing for, and it wasn't the vulgarity. It was just the, you know, making fun of the middle class and, you know, the idea that you're only interesting. It, it, it just bothered me. I walked out of the movie wanting to kick somebody, and then you wrote me, and you said, wasn't that a, a great movie? But I completely understand that, um, yes, times change. I can even say for myself, I'll say it very diagonally, that in terms of who you date and under what conditions I've been in academia long enough that there's some things I did in you know the nineties where I think, wow, today I would not even consider, but at the time, you know, that things were somewhat different. Yes. And there is a such thing as a groupie. Yeah. And there are going to be some fine lines as to, you know, what, yeah, I, I get that in terms of Russell Simmons and one of these things, at least, which made the media is not, a matter of somebody sitting on his lap with bubbly up in a room where the music is loud and somebody wakes up the next morning. It was, he violated a person in a way that yeah. really did shatter her. And the question yeah. is whether he did that multiple times. And if he did that multiple times, if it's Cosby, then the idea of, well, you just weren't there doesn't quite work. And I think we yeah. can say that in 1993, the whole idea of date rape was different. So you could violate a woman, you know, in a manner of speaking, maybe it wasn't absolutely cut and dried, but you basically had your way with somebody who yeah. stumbles out the next day feeling like, well, I wish I hadn't let that happen. I think it's good that we have a whole new way of talking about that now. And I wouldn't yeah. say, well, you have to think about the way it was. I mean, no, I, I appreciate what you're you saying. Know. I'm glad you said it too, because, um, one of the accusers, and I regret that I don't have her name in front of me at the moment, does allege that she was raped by Russell Simmons. He denies it. But she says she was raped straight up. There was nothing consensual about what happened right. to her. She was raped. Yeah. And she's raped. She's raped. And she gets to tell us that she was raped by whoever it is under whatever the circumstances are. Yeah. And and so on. So, um, you know, that, that needed to be said. Um, okay, John, what do you say we call it a day? Um, King Day uh, conversation. You got something else? We had... Um we had another topic we were going to do, and I honestly can't remember it, but we can pick it up. We can pick it up the next time. I think this was just a good free-ranging discussion on this. It was. Day. Let's pick it up the next time. I have it in my notes. Whatever it was, it won't go away. Uh, yeah, let me know. So, yeah, I will do. Thanks a lot, John. Thank Signing you, Signing off now. Glenn Show, John McWhorter. Take care. <laughs>